Today's episode is sponsored by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange. You'll be hearing more about Bittrex later on in the show. But for now, let's get into my interview with Jim Bianco. So happy to welcome Jim Bianco, founder of Bianco Research. Jim, there is so much going on. Great to have you here. We're recording the afternoon of Thursday, September 29th. So I just want to start by asking you about the turmoil in the British bond market. What sort of happened? How close were we to a meltdown? And you know, is this the first example of something, quote, breaking in the, in the markets? Let me give you the startling headline, and then I'll, I'll color it in. Yeah, there was somebody was going to fail yesterday. We're, you know, we're, as you said, we're talking about on the 29th, on Thursday the 29th, on Wednesday the 28th, if the Bank of England did not step in, somebody was going to fail. So we were going to have a major financial problem. And as a matter of fact, I say that because if you go read the Bank of England statement, they pretty much said that, that they needed to do this to ensure financial stability. Now, I'm going to assume, Jack, that uh, very few people listening to us have ever traded bonds and no one has ever traded a gilt, which is a government bond in the UK. And the reason that no one trades government bonds is uh, for, for the last 15 years, they were boring. They were yielding nothing. Their price never moves. So why would I waste my time trading a cash bond? In addition to it's hard to do it. You know, they don't trade on the New York Stock Exchange yeah. or anything like that. In the, so why would anybody do it? And the answer is because if you're a sophisticated financial institution, you can do it on 100% leverage. So you can buy bonds. You can buy $100 million worth of bonds and I have no money. And so I pledge those $100 million of bonds in the repurchase market or the repo market. I get an, uh, get an overnight loan to pay off those bonds, and I keep rolling that loan every day. So the bond market has tremendous leverage in it, and it's always had that. So this is not new. It's always been this way. And this is why the bond market has been inherently stable, unstable over the last many years, that it has episodes of fits and starts. Uh, and in the last couple of years... A lot of other players have been complaining, I can't get any yield either, like pension plans. And they said, okay, you can have leverage too. And so they all had leverage. So that's how the bond market is. It's a highly levered institution. It's a highly levered market. And it's a market of largely professionals who supposedly know what they're doing, but it constantly blows up. So we'll have to challenge that assumption. Let's then go to 10 days ago. Uh, Liz Truss becomes the prime minister of the UK. Um, she gets off to a terrible start. She shakes the queen's hand and then the queen promptly dies. So, you know, it didn't really work well for her there. And then she yeah. announces her budget. Uh, and her budget is an old style Reaganomics Maggie Thatcher budget. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to reduce regulation to try and spur economic growth. And to meet ends, make ends meet, we're going to borrow more money. Now, I personally don't have a problem with that kind of budget, but here's the issue. The UK has 10% inflation. The UK is expected to see the inflation rate go to 13 to 15%, maybe higher. And in this environment, trust is deciding that we're going to supercharge the economy with a ton of stimulus. Well, hell, it's going to go to 20% inflation if you wind up doing that. So the first thing I think people need to understand is, the fear in the market is that what she's proposing is going to work. 
and it's going to create a ton of stimulus and a ton of inflation. So the UK bond market imploded on itself. The UK, the British pound, imploded on itself because if they're going to stimulate a 10% inflationary environment, I don't want anything to do with their currency or with their bond market. So their rates went up and their currency fell to 103 intraday earlier the week we're recording. Uh, and it's around 108 right now or 107 right now. And this was, in terms of the UK bond market, the biggest move. And we have data, the UK bond market, the gilt market has been around for about 230 or 240 years continuously. And you can make the case of what we've seen this week is the biggest gyrations in that market in 230 or 240 years. And remember now, the bond market is owned by a bunch of levered players. The bond market's price is tanking. The yield was soaring to 3 4 It got to 5% on the 30-year. They were getting killed because they were owning bonds on leverage. Look, if I, own a, if I buy $100 million worth of bonds and finance the whole $100 million, and the price falls 10 points to $90 million, I'm $10 million underwater. I need to come up with $10 million now. Now, where do I come up with it? I've got other bonds that I own that are not being financed. Maybe I own them outright. I pledge those bonds as more collateral in order to keep my position. But it got so bad in the market that there was a real fear that as of 2 o'clock London time on Wednesday, they got the tap on the shoulder. And according to the Financial Times, that tap on the shoulder came from BlackRock and said, we're not going to price our liability duration um, instruments anymore because we can't. They're leveraged vehicles as well. And they just realized what's going to happen at 4 o'clock is a bunch of firms are going to come out and have to give out a press release that says, we are under regulatory capital. And a lot of financial firms borrow every day. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like 2008, I'm explaining. Uh, you know, and we borrow every day in the overnight market in order to fund ourselves. And when that announcement comes out, we're not going to get funding. And what did we learn in 08? You can go out, you can be solvent and viable, and 10 minutes later, you're done. And that was the fear of God. So what did the, the Bank of England do? They announced QT last week. They reversed it. They bought a bunch of bonds to ram the price way up so that when these firms mark their price, they're not below capital requirements. So what they did is they had a stay of execution. They didn't fix the problem. They just, it didn't blow up yesterday. And as we're recording on Thursday, what the markets are starting to realize is that's exactly what they did. They prevented the end of the world yesterday, but not for good. And now we have to figure out what is going to be the next move. So hopefully that explanation for people that don't trade gilts will make sense to them. Yeah, that's a great explanation, Jim. Thank you. So you know, there's a traditional, let's say, demarcation between, let's say, Jim, you know, back in the day, I buy Bitcoin on leverage or I buy stocks on leverage or I buy triple NASDAQ, TQQQ. And that's, quote, irresponsible because you shouldn't use leverage on volatile instruments like crypto or stocks. But you, Jim, a professional investor, you use leverage on bonds, and that was responsible because bonds, they're not, they're not supposed to be volatile. But th with the extreme volatility that we've seen in markets, uh, the buying bonds on, on leverage can be extraordinarily dangerous. And yeah, BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms in the world, this is 
getting pretty close to uh, systemic. And by the way, uh, Jim, I actually looked at a fund, uh, the, the Vanguard Long Duration Fund, that I believe also publishes their results at 4 p.m. I calculated it the morning of yesterday, Wednesday, 28th, and at the time when 30-year gilts were at 30%, rough of the you know, back of the envelope calculate math, I realized that uh, if you had invested dollars in this fund at the beginning of the year, you would be down more money than if you invested in ARK, if you take into account the currency. So, you know, the people, you know, folks who invest in their dollars into long duration gilts, they've been getting out on both ends. On the one hand, the currency has been going down. And on the other hand, the duration has been selling off. Jim, one day after this, this has happened, we have the stay of execution. Uh, the 30 year gilt yields are, I guess, they remain below 4%. You know, they'd gone from above 5% to below 4% in, you know, an hour and a half. It was, it was wild. Uh, what is your, your near term outlook? And, you know, now that we've sort of explained this for the audience, is there a lesson there? Is it a precursor to what's coming to America or the rest of, of global markets where a central bank can go from QT to QE in a day? You know, Jim, for a very long time this year, folks have said uh, the Fed can't hike, central banks can't hike, they can't tighten monetary policy because something's going to break. And so far, Jim, that logic has been proved extremely wrong. Uh, but yesterday was the first sign, I think, where we saw a central bank blink. So do you think we're going to be seeing more of this or is this just a one-time aberration? I think what you've already seen more of this. I think the week before, last week, than the week we were recording, you saw the Bank of Japan step in and try and arrest the decline in their currency, too. The, the yen was weakening. And in the case of the yen, when it goes up to 145, that's a weakening. And they, they bought a bunch of yen and knocked its price down to 140. And now, 10 days later, it went back to 144 and changed. So it's almost completely reversed. And by the way, the uh, Bank of Japan bought more yen in one day than they did through all, all of their interventions in 1998. <clears throat> and that's how much, and it only lasted for like a week in order to try and bring that market uh, down. So you're starting to see signs cracking everywhere in, in, in these markets. Now, this is why if you watch financial television all day long, and I, I kind of have it on in the background too, yeah. you hear a never-ending stream of commentators saying, the Fed has to pivot. The Fed has to stop. Central banks have to stop. They can't keep raising rates. But as we talk, I'm looking at my screen right now, the probability, after all of this, the probability that the Fed will raise rates 75 basis points again on November 2nd is 65%. It's above 50%. So that is, they're going to go another 75 points. So there is this, and by the way, that's been the story this year. Everybody has been saying the Fed's going to stop, the Fed's going to pivot, the Fed's going to pivot, the Fed's going to stop, and then the market has two good weeks, and then it just gets slaughtered. I mean, whether you're talking about the bond market or the stock market, uh, and that, and we just keep doing this over and over again because I think a lot of people cannot come to grips that this Fed and these central banks, but mainly the Fed, really means it when they say they're out to break inflation. And they are, and, and if there's collateral damage, and that is the portfolio managers on financial television telling you that the Fed has to stop, there's collateral damage. Sorry. There's 19 members of the FOMC. If you ask me, who is the most hawkish of those 19 members? It's Jay Powell. And it is, and he is the chairman. He believes, I, this is my opinion again, he believes inflation is a persistent problem. And he's going to deal with that persistent problem. That's why he invokes Paul Volcker, and we call him Volcker 2.0, and he's not backing off. And I think that a lot of people are having a hard time coming to grips with this, 
which is why they keep saying he's got to stop. And this is part of the damage that's going to be uh, that's, that's going to occur because he's fighting this inflation problem. Jim, the mainstream narrative this year has been the Fed has to pause. Maybe they'll hike a little bit, but then they'll stop. Those folks have been wrong, and, and you've been right. How high do you think the Federal Reserve will hike? I think the terminal rate now, in other words, how high the market is pricing in, the, the sort of the peak of the mountain, is like 4.5% in, uh, I think, April of 2023. Does the forward interest rate futures curve that, that priced in 4.5%, does that look a lot like the futures curve that you see the Fed doing? Is it uh, more hawkish, less hawkish? When do you think the Fed will stop hiking, if not actually cut? Well, um, you're right. The forward curve, and by the way, if you want, you can see that by looking at the, the Fed fund futures. You know, what is the yield, uh, the implied yield? You go 100 minus the price for September, yep. October, November, December, January. And you would yep. see that it peaks around February at 445. It hits a peak of around 452 in April. And as late as October, it's still like at 445. So the reason I bring that up is that the market is thinking the Fed's going to go to two and a half, four and a half, and it's going to stay there all year. The whole idea that the Fed was going to pivot and start cutting rates in 23, that's been pushed off into 24. And now we've got a whole year to see whether or not that's going to be the case. But to answer your question about how high rates are going to go, Jay Powell told us last week. I know a lot of people didn't hear him. He said that he thinks that all interest rates across the yield curve, that means every one of them, needs to become positive real. Now, what that means is they have to go above the inflation rate. And then two paragraphs later, when I was reading the transcript, he answered which inflation rate he's talking about, core PCE, their favorite measure. Core PCE, the latest number we've got now is July. Tomorrow, I think we're going to actually get um, August. But it's a 4.6%. 4.6%. Um, if you look at the Cleveland Fed, they have an, an inflation now cast. They've got it going to 4.7 in August and 4.8 in September. So Jay Powell said, I want every single interest rate, every one of them, from the three-month bill, which is 3.3%, to the funds rate, which is <coughs> three and a three and a quarter, to the to the ten to the two-year note, which is the highest point on the yield curve right now, at mm. 420. I want every single one of them above that inflation rate, which is now 480. Um, now, he's hoping that that inflation rate will come down a little bit. We'll see. It's actually been accelerating higher, but that's the objective. So rates have a lot more to go. That's one of the reasons why I think the bond market has had such a toxic reaction post-F. Remember, if you remember, Jack, last week, you probably saw everybody say, every time the Fed meets, the market's up 2%. And last week, the one the Fed met, it fell out of bed and never stopped falling out of bed. You know, it was down 2% and it just never stopped going down 2%. I think the reason is, is they heard them say, so you want every single rate approaching 5%. And that that's what freaked out the market right now. Uh, and that's where I think ultimately we're going to go. And if you believe the forward Fed funds curve, and a quick caveat about that. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the Fed funds curve, that tells you what traders or the market expects that doesn't mean that's what will happen but it does expect the fed to go to four and a half and stay there all next year no cutting of rates next year at least now you know in the coming days weeks and months that opinion will change but that's where they are right now absolutely so jim if uh, nominal rates all across the curve have to be above inflation if inflation stays high you're right then 
interest rates have to go to 5%. But what if inflation moderates or even falls sharply? Uh, I know that the phrase uh, peak inflation can be a little, perhaps not as helpful as people think, because you know inflation that's at 8.4%, having gone down from 8.5%, is still extremely high inflation. But uh, you know, what are the odds that you're pricing in by the time that interest rates are at 4.5% in the spring of next year, inflation is back down to 4% or even 3.5% on core PCE? What would have to happen for inflation to, to fall sharply? Uh, and is there anything you can imagine other than a steep and lengthy global recession that would cause inflation to, to fall sharp? All right. So there's two ways you can you can interpret this question and answer this question. Um, I've tweeted out a chart uh, that shows all the inflation forecasts in the U.S. And as the inflation rate goes up every month, Bloomberg, just so everybody knows, Bloomberg surveys like 70 economists and they ask them like, what do you think the inflation rate is going to be for the next six quarters? You know, the third quarter, fourth quarter, first, second, third, fourth of next year. And as the inflation rate goes up every single month, they think this is the peak and it's going to go back to 2% and stay there forever. This is the peak back to two. This is the peak back to two. They, 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 they do that. So there, this is the old transitory, you know, that last year that the, the inflation rate was transitory there is still a lot of people on Wall Street that do not believe we have an inflation problem. They think this is an artifact of the economy reopening because of COVID. We had a bulge. It's going to peak. It's going to come down. Actually, I'm with them there. It's going to peak and it's going to come down. Where I differ from them and where I think Jay Powell differs from them is they think, and then it will go to two. It will stay at two forever. The Fed could cut rates to zero, start quantitative easing, and everything will be fine. I think it doesn't go to two. I think it goes to three or four, um, or maybe five, or somewhere materially above two to be determined later on. Now, this is without a recession, because the other side is, yes, we could kill the economy, kill demand, and we can get the inflation rate back to two with a recession. But the problem with a recession is, then you come out of the recession, growth comes back, and the inflation rate goes back above two um, at, at that point. So <clears throat> this is this is the push-pull. I think that inflation is persistent. I, be I believe Jay Powell thinks inflation is persistent. And that I think that he thinks we need to transition to a new regime. The new regime is the neutral interest rate is four. We're going to go to four, and we're going to stay there for many, many years. And when inflation flares, we're going to go much higher. When the economy weakens, we're going to go to two. We're no longer going to zero. We're no longer printing money like mad. That era ended in 2020. Or 20, actually, to be more specific, it ended March of this year. Uh, but mm. it, the, the pandemic was the end of that era. And that, that era is over. And all the whining uh, that I hear on financial television that, oh, I need my portfolio to go up. Jay, stop, stop, start printing money. Um, he's not going to. He's not going to. And I think that in, because he believes that the inflation rate is persistent. So, Jim, you've come to the conclusion that uh, inflation is going to be persistent, like Jay Powell, that the new 2% for inflation might be 3%, might be 4%, perhaps even 5%. Do you think that, to some extent, the bond market has made that realization? And to what extent has that been responsible for the extreme drawdown in the bond market, uh, particularly in the long duration bonds, stuff like TLT or even zero coupon bonds down something like 40%, uh, absolutely wild. 
and yeah, you know, Jim, you've been posting for months the chart, of, one of my favorite charts of the Bloomberg aggregate starting at January 1st. How bad is this year compared to all other years? And every single time you post that chart, I think, oh man, this is such a ridiculous chart. But you know, Jim, there's no, there's going to be, it can't get any worse. But it absolutely has. I mean, TLT is close to being two digits, close to being 99, you know, close to breaking 100. How do you explain uh, the absolutely abysmal performance of, of the bond market? Well, I think that from a mathematical standpoint that um, I'm going to use these ugly terms that we have in the bond market called duration and convexity. Um, and uh, I'll try and explain them easy. Duration is, and I'll give you what's called the modified duration. Every time interest rates move 100 basis points, 1%, how much does the price move? When the coupons are very low or negative in the case of Europe and Japan, the durations are extremely long, meaning that the prices are very sensitive to little movements of interest rates. And you don't have a coupon to uh, cushion you. You know, you're not getting paid a fixed income. In fact, in Europe, you were getting negative coupons or zero and you had a negative rate. So that's one of the reasons why that chart is showing you a loss that I was bearish on bonds at the beginning of the year, and I never thought you'd see this. I didn't think the bond market had this in it. And it really is stunning. And you're starting to see the impact of this. You know, um, the MOVE index, which is the Merrill Option Volatility Index, it was invented by Harley Bassman, who I think you've interviewed, um, is at the one of the highest levels in its history. Uh, liquidity in the bond market is terrible, um, so much so that we had the problems in the UK, which we talked about a minute ago. Financial stress is very, very high. As a matter of fact, what's happening in the bond market, and Jack, I'm going to run away and I'm going to get something and I want to show you something here. Sure thing. Hold sure on thing. a second. Yeah. All right. Oh, wow. Cute dog. I never knew you had that dog. Yes, that's Lily. Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the conversation with Jim Bianco. I just want to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange with a focus on security and trust. Bittrex offers lightning fast trade execution on over 150 different digital assets and is protected by security practices that lead the industry. Very important. So if you're going to venture into crypto, I want you using Bittrex. It's an original in the space, been there since 2014, and it has all the tokens that you want to trade. What more do you need? So click the link in the description to learn more and tell my sent you. Now let's get back to my conversation with Jim. So Jack, here's a book, A History of Interest Rates by Sidney Homer and Richard Sala. The first version of this book was written in the 1950s. Richard Sala is a New York University professor. It is 700 odd pages of charts and tables. It shows interest rates going back to 3000 BC. So it has 5,000 years of data. Now, bonds can sell off for one of two reasons. Interest rates go up, as I mentioned, with the duration the price falls with the low coupons, the negative coupons. By the way, in 5,000 years, there's no negative coupon and there's no negative interest rates in this chart. And I would argue to you that we don't have a 5,000-year total return index. But what you're seeing in terms of interest rate movements is the biggest thing we've seen in 5,000 years. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, what's happened to the UK gilt market in the last week has not happened in 230 years of data. This is how stressed it is. Now, just to complete the thought, the other way that bonds can sell off is they could default. 
You just don't pay them and they go to 100%. But this is yeah. not about default. This is about a rise of interest rates. It's putting tremendous, tremendous stress on the system. So much so that two days ago, Janet Yellen came out and said that she sees no signs of liquidity problems or deleveraging. Poor Janet. She said it about 12 hours before the uh, Bank of England had to step in and reverse QT to QE. And then she came out and said, well, I meant the U.S. market. I didn't mean the uh, British market. And I was like, the bond markets are global. That's like me saying in Chicago, I don't see signs of global warming, but there's a big hurricane in Florida. They have global warming there, but I don't have global warming here. It doesn't work that way. The bond markets are all interconnected. If the U.K. market's in chaos, they're all pretty much in chaos, um, you know, to varying degrees, but they're not healthy. Is, and that's because of this giant rise of interest rates. Everybody buys them on leverage, and you can see the, the, the losses. By the way, to give you an idea about buying them on leverage, one other thought. If you look at the BKX index, the bank stock index, banks mm -hmm. buy bonds on leverage. They own a lot of bonds in their portfolio on leverage. It's down 40% from its high in January. That's how bad the big banks have been getting killed. The price of BKX, the index, the bank stock index, is the same level it was in 1998. Let me rephrase yeah. that. 24 years, a U.S. stock market index has made you no money. I didn't think that was possible. I mean, everything goes up, right? Everything is FOMO and TINA, except for the banks. This stress on the banks is just tremendous right now. Yeah, Jim, uh, viewers, longtime fans of you know that you are no lover of the banks. And you and I and, and other you know, viewers of financial television know a very common refrain, Jim, you've heard this probably 300 times, is, rise. oh, I'm bullish on the banks. Why? Because interest rates are rising. Can you explain why folks say that? And then why is it so different? Is it, is it always true that rising rates are, are good for banks? And under what circumstances are the tremendous interest rate volatility you've seen, can they actually be bad for, for banks? You said the, the bank index is down 40%. Right. So what they mean by that, I'm bullish on banks. By the way, I, this is what I always joke around. Why did God invent bank stocks to make, former, to make portfolio managers former portfolio managers? Because <laughs> that's about all they ever seem to do uh, in the last couple of decades. Uh, but uh, banks to make money on net interest margin. They make money by, by having a cost of funding. They acquire money at a certain rate. They lend it out at a higher rate, and they make money on the spread. Normally, when rates go up, the spread widens. They make more money. Yes, except this chart you're looking at here is that this is the biggest rise of rates relative to, to total return. And see, the thing about total return is... Yes. If rates go from 1% to 2%, that's a double. If rates go from 10 to 20, that's a double. Which one is more deleterious for the market? That's where total return comes in. And 1 to 2 is a much bigger problem than 10 to 20. Uh, and so what you're seeing happen is, yes, rising rates are good for banks, except when it's the biggest rise in 5,000 years. Then it becomes a real problem for the banks. It becomes a problem for the entire financial system. And we saw the Bank of England, as I said, have to issue a stay of ex execution yesterday because of what's been happening in their bond market. Yeah, Jim, so you know, I sort of view financial education as a ladder, like you're, you're always climbing and you know, you're very high on the ladder. I'm like you know, cl climbing up. There was a time when I knew what long dur duration meant. It meant it was far in the future. So a 30-year bond has longer duration than a, a two-year treasury note, for example. But it wasn't until you know, you know, the past year I knew that 
you know, duration is actually a precise mathematical calculation. So you can be extremely rigorous and quantitative when you say no. Duration in this market is extremely high, and uh, uh, return, but the long-term bonds are extremely sensitive to interest rates, and interest rates have exploded higher. Another point, Jim. So Scylla, yeah, by the way, uh, I, I've been meaning to read that book for a long time, but uh, you know, credit credit to you because no, it's, it's, it's a it's a boring it's a boring book. It's just charts and tables. That's all it yeah, really is. People can't <laughs> say, but it's a, it's a heavy one, right? I've heard it's very heavy. Right, seven hundred pages. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think another uh, New York uh, professor, uh, Oswald Dermoderin, I've got you know, research from uh, data on his site. I just did some total return analysis, and people say the 1970s is so bad for bonds. You know, Jack. Uh, how could you possibly say that what we're seeing right now is worse than 1970s? I say no. I think it's worse because you look. There's only one year in all of the 1970s, not counting the 1980s, but 1970s, where you had negative total return on a nominal basis for bonds. Why? Because interest rates were so high. Yeah, mark to market, you lost eight, you know, eight percent, but you got paid 10 percent in terms of the yield. Now there's no protection. Yeah, can, can you just like speak to how severe the losses are? Uh, for portfolio managers, the systemic risk, and also maybe share your views on the fact that bonds are supposed to rally when stocks do well. But you know, there, right. there's a great chart so, from Michael Gaia that I saw you retweet. Uh, this is you know, one of the extremely few instances where the stock market has crashed hard and had a horrible year, and the bond market also uh, was, was you know, crashed as well. Right. The last time is the late 70s that we saw that. So just to um, uh, put this into, into perspective... Let me talk about that. Duration is a mathematical measure, right? Um, in 1981, when the 30-year bond had a 14% coupon, the duration was six and a half. That meant if the price, if the yield went from 13 to 14, you lost six and a half percent of your money. But you were getting 14% coupon. So basically, you had to have like a 250 basis point rise in rates, and you still broke even. But when you get to 2021, last year, the duration, because of interest rates fell, it's called convexity, positive convexity, it's out to 22 years. So every 100 basis point move is 22%. And then you wind up with a coupon, you wind up with a coupon of somewhere around one or two, um, or about two on it. So all you need is about a 30 or 40 basis point move in the interest rates, and you've wiped out, you're going to be at a loss for the entire year. That's the risk, the inherent risk in bonds. And then if you go to negative, you know, then the equation blows up, and, and, and that's what we saw in Europe and, and in Japan um, as well. So that is, the, that is the mathematical equation, and that's why these losses in the bond market are so huge. Now, no one thought this would happen. Everybody thought that the central banks would never allow this to happen. And that the, and to some extent, I don't think that the central banks really truly understand what's going on in the bond market. You know, I don't think that, I think it took the Bank of England, this is my opinion again, it took the Bank of England two days this week to figure out what was going on. And it took BlackRock threatening to not price their funds to get them to move because they were clueless as to what happened in the New York Federal Reserve did the same thing in September 2019 when the repo market blew up. It took Lori Logan, who's now the Dallas Fed president, ran the desk three days to figure out what was going on. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand what they were supposed to do. Now, maybe I don't understand it. I have an idea of it. You don't understand it. Our readers don't, our listeners don't understand it. They're not setting the policy. 
The New York Fed and the Bank of England is setting the policy. The policy blows up in their face and then they go, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. It's kind of incumbent that you understand this stuff if you're going to set the policy. But apparently they're not really setting the policy. So what is happening in the bond market is truly historic. And the stresses are very, very high. And it's showing up in the surging dollar. It's showing up in the falling fixed income markets. I know because a lot of people turn to me and say, but no one's blew up. Well, almost yesterday in, in the UK. And I, and I always point out when somebody blows up, you know, that some financial firm fails, that's the end of the move. That's not the, you don't have firms fail in the beginning of the move. I know you'll say, what about Bear Stearns? Okay, yeah. that was a bit of an exception. But remember, in September, October of 08, you had Bears, you had Lehman, you had AIG, you had a lot of firms really essentially failing. You know, you had Washington Mutual, you had a lot of firms going sideways at, at that point. That's typically the end of or near the end of the move. So the fact that no one is blowing up, other than maybe we were close yesterday in the UK, suggests we're not near the end of this move. Now maybe next week somebody starts to go sideways. Um, you know, because of all the leverage in the bond market, and we'll have to see. But the point is, is that the Fed is, I think, just trying to re. Jay Powell is trying to reposition the entire bond market for a coming period of persistent inflation, and this process of change is very difficult on markets, and that this process is not over yet. Um, and we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that they're right that, you know, this is just a one-time pandemic thing and it goes back to 2% and stays there forever. We could go back to zero in money printing all over again. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think Jay thinks that's the case right now. And the only thing that will get you to 2% is a recession. And then it will only last as long as you're in recession. The minute you come out of recession, interest rates will go back up. Like for many years, we're going to be at a higher interest rate regime. Jim, at the beginning of the year, you were looking at the 10-year yield, and it was not attractive to you at one and a half, two percent 2%, wherever it was. And you were right. You know, now the 10-year t- the yield is just a few basis points away from uh, Joseph Wang's target of 4%. So at what point, Jim, now that the 10-year t- treasury is, what, 3.9%, the two-year treasury is above 4%, Inverted yield curve, we can talk about that as well. At what point do treasuries become a buy? Because, you know, let's say you, you buy SHY, an ETF that owns a two-year treasury bond, a two-year treasury note, and it, it's yielding 4%. You're getting 4% in dividend, or at least you will in the future. So even if you have right. a mark-to-market loss of, of, five, of, of 4%, which is like pretty much what it's had already, you're pretty much from a flat. So... Uh, you know, how are you thinking about allocating towards you know, fixed income? And uh, you know, can you speak to, you know, you've got a lot of uh, high-profile institutional clients. Like, what's the sort of attitude out there? Well, now you're actually getting a yield. Um, you know, as my friend Jim Grant, who writes the Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I like to say, congratulations, Jim, you have an interest rate to observe again. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so uh, that's what the 4% yield is. So if you want to buy a two-year treasury and, or a two-year treasury ETF, uh, what are the probabilities that you will have a positive return in the next year? Pretty good. Yeah. It, but if you're an institution, should you buy the two-year treasury with leverage? No. Probably not. Because if the price goes to 450, you're in a heap of trouble again. Or for, uh, the yield goes to 450, the yield goes to 475. You're in a heap of trouble again. Furthermore, if you buy that two-year treasury and... You get a positive return, 
um, in the next year. So you make four and a half. So you make four percent. The price stays the same, and you get a four percent coupon. And the stock market bottoms, and it's eighteen or twenty percent higher in a year. Was that a good trade? Maybe not. So the problem with always the problem with investments is they have they they're, they're not in a vacuum. So yes, I do think that the 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 idea that Treasuries will give you a positive return going forward from here. It's pretty good. But will you? does that mean you should be calling the repo desk if you're a professional investor, a bank or broker or something, and be buying it on leverage? It might be too early for that. Should you be abandoning the stock market in order to take your 4% coupon in the uh, two-year and just be done with it? You know, I think most people, if I, if I use Twitter, and Twitter is a sore and probably a bad example. Most people are still a bunch of degens trying to find a low. They're not worried that the next move in the stock market is going to be hundreds of points lower. Although the last move in the stock market, when they said that was hundreds of points lower. So I think that that's the other problem that it has too. Because I could see somebody saying, I put all my money in the two-year treasury and I'm getting 4%. People would say, why? The stock market's going to end this route, this route and it's going to moon and you will be sorry that you were just getting 4%. So that's, these are the considerations you have to think about when it comes to investing in bonds. And Jim, what is your outlook on the stock market? We had a lull during the summer where stocks bounced off of their mid-June low, but now uh, the stock market S&P 500 has crashed, perhaps too dramatic of a word, but pretty close to crash, down 12% over the past two weeks, uh, two weeks, three weeks. And we're um, you know, back in a bear market, down about 25% from all-time highs. What is your your outlook on, on stock? Um, I think that the stock market is going to have a problem because if the market is about higher rates and it's being suffering suffering from higher rates, and you're right, in June to August they rallied 17 percent, the S and P 500. And what was the what was the narrative? The Fed's going to pivot. All everybody wants is they want the Fed to stop raising rates, and they think the stock market can take off. What does that tell me? tells me that the stock market's not cheap. It tells me it has no value. It tells me that it's just a speculative vehicle. And please, Jay, allow the speculative uh, juices to start flowing again. That's a bad bet in this environment because I think that he's not going to let the speculative flows. Um, to quote Mohammed Alarian yesterday, I mean, you know, the, there's only two things that are going to get the Fed to stop at this point, or three. One is there's some solid evidence that inflation is falling, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's going to happen next week. The another one is that you have a, a financial crisis or you have a bad recession. Well, if you have a financial crisis or a bad recession, don't touch stocks. They're going to get slaughtered. And then eventually they'll bottom because we had a financial crisis and or a recession. And then they'll rally. And they probably won't even rally back to these levels if you're not careful. Uh, mm -hmm. So the stock market has got a lot of headroom. I don't hear a lot of people saying just buy stocks for very cheap. But let me throw out another idea at you about the stock market. I've kind of teased this idea that inflation is persistent, and I'm going to channel my inner Zoltan Pozar. What has happened in the last two years is three major trends that have led to low stable inflation, interest rates at zero, um, economics being very stable and, and booming markets, has been cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy. All of those are ending uh, at the same time cheap labor. You've probably heard of quiet quitting. You've probably heard of the Great Resignation or the lie flat that was during Omicron when we were all going to do work mm -hmm. from bed. Um, and uh, I'll give you one statistic. 
The Partnership for New York City has been surveying New York Manhattan offices and the September numbers came out and there's still only 9%, 9% of Manhattan offices are full-time five days a week. 16% of Manhattan workers are full-time at home. So let me make a statement to you. The era of five days in the office is over. It is over. We are now in the office some period less. And by the way, I know people say, oh, you wait for the recession, then they'll be coming begging back for the job. No, people attach a monetary value to working from home. In a recession, they'll give you more days at home because it's a way to give you a raise without shelling out money. Mm. But this is not new. We used to work on the farm 150 years ago. That was tough, ter- dirty work. We hated it. We moved to the factory. Then that was tough, dirty work. We hated it. We moved to the office. Now we're moving away from the office and we're moving to the digital world is really what we are. So this is a fourth wave that we've seen of this. This is not new. But what it is what it is leading to is people are not valuing the, the nose to the grindstone in the office. You're seeing... 11 million jobs open, 5 million unemployed, 3.7% unemployment. The day we're recording, the initial claims came out under 200,000. I hear everybody saying, well, the the jobs market's falling apart. No, it's not. Initial claims is at an eight-month low. We've printed 300,000 jobs every month. We have a 3.7% unemployment rate. The problem with the jobs market is it's not falling apart. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean it won't in the future, but it's not now. So there's no reason for the Fed to stop. That's leading to wage growth of 5% a year. So you get a 5% raise, more like 7 or 8 if you switch your job, more like 3.5-4 if you keep your job. If that's really what we're having, a 5% wage world, we can afford 5% inflation. Companies are bidding for workers. The era of cheap labor is over. Cheap goods. $9 $9 trillion of goods over the last 25 years have come from Asia. Six of that $9 trillion has come from China. People were, were, people were willing to accept the lowest possible um, pay for a job because they wanted a job and they were going to work hard and move up. That attitude has changed. They're now, you know, uh, they're now wanting to work from home a lot more. The offset of that was... Here's a bunch of cheap crap, and that's a technical term that you can buy at Target or Walmart, uh, yeah. and to offset to offset the cheap labor that we weren't paying you a lot of money. We are having all kind of problems with China, and right. there is an axis forming between China and Russia that maybe we're not going to and we're not going to go back to. Don't worry, the Chinese are just going to just crank out cheap crap and put it on boats and send it to the U.S. And we're just going to be swimming in all this cheap stuff that we can buy. That era is over as with as well, too, I think. And then cheap energy. The biggest energy producer in the world by country is Russia. And we've got all, we're not going back. There's going to be no deal. And Russia is going to then turn up, open the spigots and send in cheap gas to Europe. Hell, they broke Nord Stream 1 and 2. And I've heard that they may never be able to fix them, that they're broken so bad. Or if they do, it's going to take a very, very long time to fix them. And now Zoltan has pointed out that European manufacturing has taken $27 billion a year of cheap energy from Russia and turned it into $2 trillion worth of goods. In all manufacturing, it's the a- access to cheap energy, that make, not labor, cheap energy. Yeah. So I, I shudder what's going on in the Stuttgart plant making Mercedes. The price they're yeah. paying for natural gas and the price they're paying for energy to make Mercedes has got to make their cost bases a mess right now. All of those eras are over. This is why I think we have persistent inflation. What does that mean for financial markets? 
for the last 15 years, what you could do in financial markets was buy ETFs, buy spiders, buy XLE, the energy ETF, buy some version of some broad-based index and wait for the Fed to drop rates to zero and print those higher. Right. I think we're going back to a 70s, 80s, 90s, early 90s, a George Noble type of environment. You know, he was a uh, disciple of um, Peter Lynch and Peter Lynch type of environment where it's back to stock picking. It's not going to be, oh, I'm bullish on energy, buy XLE. It's going to yeah. be, I'm bullish on energy. Which stock should you buy? Yeah. Because... If we don't have cheap energy, if we don't have cheap labor, and if we don't have cheap goods, not every country company can deal with that equally. When we had all that stuff that was cheap, the, all the healthcare stocks were interchangeable. All the energy stocks were interchangeable. They're not interchangeable anymore. We're going to have to go back to stock picking in the next several years. And let me make an inflammatory statement. Your average portfolio manager doesn't do that doesn't know how to do Oh, they all think they know how to do it. They pass the CFA. They pick, they pick sectors. They pick ETFs. That's, this is an art form that they have not had to use for decades. And I think we're going to have to go back to that art form as well. Uh, and it's going to be a very difficult period. Are we in a recession right now? And if not, do you think we are very likely headed for one? Uh, and how steep do you think it, it might be if you do think so? Um, so the mic drop is, yes, we are in a recession, full stop, next question. Uh, you know, uh, and, the reason I, and the reason I say that is a couple of things. Recessions are measured from the peak of economic activity. I think we've already peaked in economic activity. There, you're right. The street likes to use two consecutive negative quarters. We've already had that. Um, by the way, the third quarter, if you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP now, is only 0.3. Now, they still have another month worth of data coming, but... It's not, on, it's not out of the question that we could have another negative quarter, uh, a third consecutive negative quarter as well. But there's never been two consecutive negative quarters that were not in recession. Now that I've said that, you're right. Recession is a, it's a, it's a politically and emotionally charged word. Recession means, and I'm going to use a technical term here, recession means shit hits the fan is what it means, right? Um, yeah. No, what this actually is is a peak of economic activity, and it's a, it's a mild recession. Can it turn into something more? Yes. If it gets worse, yes. But when it gets worse, and by the way, a recession is there's a business cycle dating committee of six yep. economists. It's whatever they say a recession is. Yeah. And what I think is if it gets worse and they sit down to meet to determine what was the day the recession started, it's probably in the first half of the year. It, you know, and but the the peak rate year over year rate of change, you know, how bad the economy gets, that might still be ahead of us. But I think, yes, we are in a recession. I think if it ended now, it would be a very mild one. But it's, it's deteriorating. Mm. And the sort of a hallmark of most recessions is that inflation goes down sharply during recessions, at least over the past 40 years. Uh, you said except that- you, the you, 70s. Except, except the 70s. Except the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So, so this environment where we have a recession, but inflation is still at three or four, or maybe even 5%, how do people think about that? Because even folks who've, you know, veterans of the industry like you, you know, I don't think we're working in the 1970s when it was, uh, you know, crazy. So like definitely people like me, I have no idea uh, whatsoever. Sort of how, you know, as you study the 1970s, what were investment strategies that worked and what were investment strategies that definitely did not work? 
Well, um, you know, the investment strategy that worked in the 70s was that was the era where Peter Lynch, which I mentioned a minute ago, came out of. He was picking individual stocks. This stock has their costs under control. This stock has management that gets it. This stock is clueless. Stay away from it. You know, and so, but we've, like I said, we've gone so far away from that. It's, it's just by spy and you're done. Um, mm -hmm. So that's usually the environment. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work that people are not used to doing um, right now. And I think that that is where it's going to go. By the way, there's been other periods too where you've had high recession after the ninth, after World War II in the 1940s. You had a 20% recession. I'm sorry, a 20% inflation rate, 1946, 1947. Now, you're right, when you had a what you had in the 70s was you had a big run-up of inflation in 74, you had a bad recession, inflation rate fell, the Fed pivoted, that's it, the inflation's over with, and then you had a bigger mountain of inflation by 1979-1980. So it really comes down to, you know, are we in that regime change of cheap goods, cheap energy, cheap labor? I think we are. And so we're going to have persistently high inflation and we need to transition to a new type of world? Or do you still think like the street, no, nah, this is just a reopening thing and it's going to go away in two years and then we'll be, we'll be back um, to where we were in the past? So this is going to be the question. This is why markets, what markets are doing with the stress that you've seen in markets and the losses you've seen in markets is I think the signal from markets is we're in a period of change. We're in a period of big change right now. And here's the problem. I've used as the example that I think is best overlay for this is after World War II. You had a big run-up of inflation. You had a recession. You had another run-up of inflation. And what happened after World War II was September 45, the war ended. Everybody knew the war ended. Everybody knew the world was going to change. In 1947... When you, had, or you, had, you were coming off the peak of inflation and going down, people were not complaining, when do I get my job back making Sherman tanks? That era was over. We knew that the economy needed to restructure. We went through two recessions, two inflation waves, and we set off a boom for the 50s into the mid-60s. Yeah. Today, in 2022, you'll hear people on Wall Street say, return to normal, get back to the office. So instead of me, when I say we're in an era of change, we're in an era that things are changing, instead of say, nodding in agreement and saying, yes, let's figure out how to restructure the economy for this new era, we want to have an argument whether or not we are actually in a new era. And, yeah. um, you know, Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs doesn't think we're in a new era. He said as much. You get all those lazy asses back to, you know, um, uh, down at 55 Water Street or... Uh, yeah. Uh, 200 West, excuse me, 200 West, which is their office, you know, and uh, Jamie Dimon has just built um, a giant office tower and by God, he wants people in it. They don't think anything's changed um, right now. They think eventually it's going to go back to 2019. Well, you know, this is a prediction of the future. It could be. That could be very well the case. I just think it's very different, but I think we're wasting time arguing about it instead of figuring out how to do it. In 1947, we weren't, like I said, I don't repeat myself. In 1947, no one said, where's my job getting Sherman tanks? They yeah. were saying, what's the new job that I need to get? What's the economy hold in store next? We don't seem to be saying that question. So we're wasting time, which is why this is taking so much longer. Jim, pretty much since I began interviewing you in 2020, you've been saying this about work from home. And every time I interview you, it seems like you get more right um, I think we've finally seen it not only in the vacancy numbers, but specifically in the prices of 
commercial real estate investment trust or the ETFs that own them that are now down something like 40, 50, 60%. Um, do you, how, how severe do you think that the bubble is, is there? You know, typically I think it's historically been a bad idea to short real estate investment trusts just because the dividends are so high. So you're going to have to pay like 8% a year to short it. But, um, you know, I mean, how, how bad do you think the, the pain will be there? Uh, do you think there could be insolvencies? And then, you know, I guess real estate very connected to the banking sector, which I know you're also not the biggest fan of. Right, right. The benefit the real estate market has is that it's only been two years, right? No one's going to the office, but everybody's still paying rent. Mm-hmm. So, but over the next several years, that is going to, um, that is going to uh, change. By the way, just a quick word on work from home. The day before we recorded, I don't know if you saw, but Mary Barra announced that they were trying to get all of the office workers at GM, General Motors, back to the office three days a week. And they basically gave up on it, like literally the day before, yesterday. Uh, they gave up on getting everybody back to the office because, because of the backlash uh, they were getting. And I and I want to emphasize one other thing about work from home. Right now, well, pre-COVID, you were home two days a week, Saturday, Sunday. Let's say you're three days in the office. Um, now you're home four days a week. That's double the amount of time as home. That is enormous. That changes your lifestyle, changes your consumption basket, changes your outlook on life, and everything changes. If you're home five days a week and in the office two days, it changes even more. Now, to your point about offices, I am not arguing that there isn't a need for people that work together to congregate together. They need to. I am arguing that to get on the New Jersey path and smell urine and go to some building on the 38th floor in the cubicle third row down on the left, that era is what people don't want to do. So sit down and figure out why we need to get together, when we need to get together, and what we're supposed to accomplish when we get together. So that is the problem that we seem to be having right now. Yes, you're right. I think the banks are pushing, this is my opinion, the banks are pushing so hard to get everybody back in the office because they want everybody back in all the real estate that they financed. Yeah. You know, they, they've got a window now. Like I said, everybody's still paying rent because your lease didn't expire from yep. 2020. 100%. And Jim, but sorry, it, the first people to go back to work were people who worked in real estate, commercial real estate. Right. They, they went back to work in like May of 2020. Yeah. Right, right. As a matter of fact, I know some real estate people that actually never left work. That, you know, in March of 2020, they were still going in. The, when we thought COVID was going to be the black plague, they were still going into the office yeah. every day. Now we know it's more like the flu. But back then, we didn't know that. And they, that did not deter them at that point. We went from the farm to the factory. We went from the factory to the office. We're going from the office to some digital era. This is the fourth time that we've done this in the yeah. last 150 years. This is not something new that we've seen before. And what the pandemic did is we were, and I'm going to channel Nick Bloom of Stanford University. He's done the, the groundbreaking work on, on work from home. As Nick likes to say, we were moving at about a half a percent a year of the workforce was moving towards remote work, work from home. In 2019, we had about 4% of the workforce working from home. Um, we had about 8 or 9% of the workforce being hybrid, you know, some days in the office. Today, that's like 16% and like 35%. So what we've essentially done is we've taken a trend that we were going to do and we sped it up 30 years in two years. That's mm-hmm. what we're... That, so this is why everybody likes it because we were going in that direction anyway. We just went so fast, we need to kind of catch up. 
And that's what we're going to have to do. And like I said, it has enormous implications for everything. The retailers have been having simultaneous gluts and shortages because they're starting to realize people are home. When Omicron ended and Target and Walmart said, everybody's coming back to the, uh, everybody's going to come back to the store and buy stuff. What do we put on the shelves? We'll put the same stuff in the same proportions that we had on the shelves in 2019. It's 2022. And what did they find out? We don't buy stuff in those proportions anymore. Our lifestyle has changed because we're at home four or five days a week. They're now starting to kind of, they've, they've recognized that that's the case and they're trying to understand what the 2022 consumer wants. And the answer, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know what the answer is. It's not what the 2019 consumer wanted. It's different. That extra couple of days in the, uh, at home has changed a lot of things. And I don't think people recognize. And it's tough to say, but if a company used to pay for an office and their employees went in five days a week, now they're going in two days a week. On the margin, do you think companies will be inclined to pay less for real estate because they're only getting like two days? They're only getting, you know, they're not squeezing as much juice out of the lemon as they used to be. So what do you think? Yeah, see, the problem that companies have right now is, is they want everybody, you know, everybody goes in the office two days a week. Okay, which two days? And basically, it's, you know, it's Wednesday and Tuesday or something yep. like that. You know, and you have Monday, Thursday, And everyone has Friday to come off. in on the same day. Otherwise, you're not collaborating. Yeah. Right. Right. So now they're kind of stuck with, oh, okay, so now I still need the same footprint. But now I'm only using it two out of five days as opposed to five out of five days. So that just becomes more expensive. That's why the whole idea that everybody has to come in at the same day and collaborate at the same time is still an anachronism back to 2019. We need to start to rethink how we do this in the digital world. My final question for you is about the labor market. You, uh, there are two sort of data sets you can look at. You can look at the hard data, the jobless claims, uh, the unemployment rate, and then you can look at stories. Uh, 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 Peloton is laying off people. Uh, mortgage servicers, mortgage originators, they're laying off a lot of people. Just came off on, on Bloomberg.com a, a few minutes ago that the headline of, of is that Meta, Facebook, says that it will have some restructuring and that it will end 2023 as a, quote, somewhat smaller organization. So if two data sets, Joe, Jim, if, if you were only looking at the data and I were only looking at the stories, I would think that the labor market were a lot worse than, than you would think of looking at the data. So how do you sort of square the fact that the data still looks okay, even though day after day, we're still getting these sort of really, really bearish uh, and, and bad signs from, from companies that are laying off people? Well, the, the simple answer is that's the way it always is. Uh, because, you know, headlines, um, layoffs and restructurings always grab big headlines. Um, you know, and um, look, last week, um, Amazon said that they were going to hire forty to 50,000 seasonal workers uh, for the, for the uh, holiday season. Is, is that going to be as big a headline as Meta is restructuring? No. So that's the, kind of the way it is. And that data, by the way, shows up in the payroll report, shows up in initial claims. And to be clear, like I said, I'm not arguing that the labor market won't go bad. I'm arguing it hasn't gone bad. And Jay Powell is going to say, we've got 5% wage growth and the labor market has not gone bad. It is too early to consider a pivot just because Meta's laying off some people or Peloton's in deep trouble um, is, is unfortunate for them, but that is not going to lead to him pivoting. Now, if you print 50,000 jobs or negative jobs, if you see a spike in the 
on claims numbers, if you see a spike in the unemployment rate, okay, then we can have a discussion about a pivot. But right now, to say that the Fed will back off or pivot is way too early. That's kind of the way that I look at the, at the job market. Again, I am not of the opinion that the labor market will stay fine forever. I'm just saying they're not going to anticipate, oh, we're at 3.7% unemployment with raging inflation. We can't raise rates anymore. It might be bad in the future. No, it actually has to go bad before they stop. Um, it's, they're not going to anticipate this. They don't care about the stock market. In fact, Neil Kashkari a couple of weeks ago said he was happy the stock market was going down. They want it to go down. And I think this is a very difficult thing for people to get their head around. Yep. And uh, another headline on Bloomberg by our mutual friend, Ed Harrison, is Jay Powell needs investors to lose money. Uh, Jim, it's been a total pleasure having you on for guidance. People should check out your work at Bianco Research. Uh, you're on Twitter, posting great stuff uh, at Bianco Research on Twitter. Uh, could you qu uh, could you conclude your thoughts uh, on asset allocation? Uh, you know, you're sort of still skeptical about the stock market and sort of risk assets broadly. Uh, how do you think about bonds, like both long end and short end? And then sort of if both bonds and stocks are going to continue to do badly, where do people put their money? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to is this a new post-pandemic economy? And if it is, and it is the era of cheap labor, cheap goods, and cheap energy is gone, then we're in an era of persistently high inflation, and a lot of things are going to have to change. And what you're seeing in financial markets is part of that readjustment process. And it's going to be difficult as we move forward from here. That's the scenario I think we're in. If we are in a one-time surge because we reopen the economy to go away in 18 to 24 months, and back to 2%, then we could pretty much re go back to some era that looks like 2019, 2018. Um, and so this is the question that people have to ask themselves. Is this a post-pandemic economy? Which means the overlays and the understandings of 2018, 2019 don't apply in 2022 and 2023. It's not dystopian, it's different. And that's what the markets, I think, are telling us. With all the volatility, with all the turmoil in markets, they're telling us we're in a period of epic change. And why are we in a period of epic change? Because we're now back into something we haven't been in 40 years, 50 years. And that is a period of persistent inflation. Will it last forever? No. What will make the persistent inflation go away? Restructure the economy to get back to cheap goods, cheap energy, and cheap labor. But like I said a couple of times in this interview... We don't want to restructure. We want to argue whether or not that needs to be done in the first place. So that's therefore the markets will continue to stay on edge as we move forward mm. from here. So in terms of like putting stuff into risk busset buckets, should people be uh, overweight bonds, underweight stocks, underweight both? Uh, what do you think about commodities as well as crypto? It's going to be a stock picking environment and it's going to be a period to use a fancy word of wide dispersion. Certain mm. stocks will be up a ton. Certain stocks will be down a ton. And uh, there won't be any rhyme or reason of the index. But, you know, within that, there will be themes that work and themes um, that don't work. I think interest rates are not quite at the fair value level. I think Powell is right. They got to go to all of them got to go into the fours, not just their two year note, but all of them got to go into the fours. And then you're only at neutral. And then if you have inflation, they're going to go higher. And if you have a recession, they're going to go down to two. Um, and uh, so I think that we've got more pain to go in the bond market, but most of it is behind us now. 
but it's still a little too early. Crypto, um, let me say a nice word about crypto. I have been lamenting that they are highly correlated with risk markets. You know, you know, I, I publish this tweet every weekend that says, look at the S&P on Saturday and Sunday, and it'll tell you how the s I mean, look at, look at Bitcoin on Saturday and Sunday. It'll tell you how the S&P is going to open on Sunday night. If it's down over the weekend, it opens down. If it's up over the weekend, it opens up. The last couple of weeks, that's not been working. Maybe crypto is starting to show early signs that it is something more than just a speculative risk on vehicle. And it is because it's not cratering. We're still above 19,000 a Bitcoin here, even though the stock market is absolutely falling out of bed True. Um, right now. So maybe it is starting to become that zero correlated asset that it should be. I believe it should be. It's too early to say that for sure, but it's starting in the last yeah. couple of weeks. You've noticed it's not at 17,000 right now, um, which is where it should be if you were overlaying it with the S&P. So yeah. there might be some some internal strength starting to show up in crypto um, right now. So maybe that's a, a good sign. We're past the merge in Ethereum and maybe things are finally starting to settle out and it's starting to show some some, you know, some optimism, you know, um, Ethereum's at 1300. It got under a thousand, you know, back in July. So it's definitely holding some of its strength as well, too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks Daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks Daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.